I'm reading today from Ephesians 4, verses 1 to 6. You can find that in the bulletin as well as in any Bibles you've taken along or your app. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Um, this morning, uh, if you were looking at the uh, cover of the bulletin at all, you'll notice uh, we're starting another series, a new series, How Shall We Then Live? Um, I know it sounds really awkward. It's, it's kind of a rip off of an, an, an old but phenomenal book by a guy named uh, Francis Schaeffer, who wrote in the 1970s a very influential, excellent book that I strongly, highly recommend that you uh, read even now, today, even though it sounds old. He wrote it in 1976. It was called How Should We Then Live? Really complicated title, so I thought I'd take a riff off of, uh, of that title for this series. Uh, and I, typically when we start a new series, what I like to do is I like to explain how the series came about, why we're going through the series. But it was a series of things that came together that brought me to the place where I wanted to preach this series. And so in order to explain this series, it would be like preaching a whole sermon just explaining the series, which is not really preaching. Uh, so what I'll do is I'll, I'll give a little insight into why we're doing this series each week. So you'll understand, hopefully, by the end of the series, why we did the series. You get what I'm saying? Okay, so here's why we're, we're doing this series, um, for at least for this morning. This is my explanation. Part of the impetus is, is that we live in a radically, quickly changing world. The world is changing, changing, and I know I rolled my eyes when uh, people my age now said to me when I was a teenager, you know, the world is changing so quickly. I'd be like, yeah, come on. It ain't changing that bad, but it, it is changing very, very quickly, actually. The older I get, the more I see how quickly it's changing and how difficult it is for me to keep up and how, how the changes that are happening so quickly, it's hard, it's very, very hard for us to, to be able to keep up with the consequences of those changes. So, for example, let me just give you a very, very simple illustration. Um, when, when, when my children go to school, 
I have the capability now of knowing exactly where they, where they are at academically at any given time. There's this program at the high school they go to. If I log on to this thing, I can see how many assignments they've missed. I can see if they've skipped class. I can see what they're getting on tests, et cetera, like in the moment, like in the right here and right now. I, I lost my password, so I haven't been able to do that for a year or so because I have not asked for a new password yet, but my wife is into it, so I, I still know what's going on. Now, when I was a kid, my parents knew how school was going on parent-teacher interview night. And that was when most of us kids were sitting at home bracing ourselves for the return of mom and dad and the inevitable, what's going on? How come you're missing this? And why aren't you doing that? And I'm telling you, we are going to bring the hammer down here at home. It's going to be a lot of changes. And you are going to uh, shape up and fly right, young man. Well, we don't have that anymore because we have these, 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 this edgy thing. Now, is that a good thing? Or a bad thing? Depends who you ask. It depends when you're asking them. Kids will say it's terrible. Most, probably. Most parents will say they kind of like it. Most psychologists, however, are not so sure. Because we now have parents who are more and more kind of helicoptering over their children's education, which in turn seems to have some long-term consequences about young people's ability to deal with life uh, academically after high school, when they go on to post-secondary education, and in fact, how can they deal with life generally because they've been micromanaged so much uh, as kids. So, and yet, it's good as well because parents are taking more of an active interest in the education of their kids. So that's just one example um, of how changes that maybe we don't think through and we just sort of assume are worth making have consequences that we can't foresee. And we live in a world with all kinds of these changes happening. I'll give you another very quick example. Um, 20 years ago, if you asked people how many genders there were, they would say very simply and clearly, obviously there are two, there are boys and there are girls. Today, the question of uh, gender fluidity is now much more prevalent among us, and people would say that, that sex is no longer uh, discovered at birth, but assigned at birth. These are changes that you, 20, 30 years ago, you just simply never could have imagined, and now they're very common in our modern culture. And the question that, that we, we need to ask as Christians is, how on earth do we navigate a world like that, that is changing so quickly that the, the sands of culture are shifting so rapidly, how should we live in this world? How do we make sense of this world? How do we follow Jesus in this world? That's not an easy thing to figure out. And I just want to make a plug to any of you who are maybe here who are not Christians and are, are curious about Christianity and investigating Christianity. One of the objections people have to the Christian faith is that it's, it's for non-thinking people. People are like, you know, Christians, they don't think. They just take their marching orders from the Bible, and they just do whatever the Bible says, and uh, they don't really think through the complicated issues of, of living in the modern world, and that's actually just not true. That is not true at all. Christians, just like everybody else, have to navigate how to live in this world and have to think very deeply how to engage the, the, the issues of life and, and um, 
and it's no different for us than it is for anybody else. And in fact, I would say that Christians, in some ways, they have to think even more because they refuse to simply adopt kind of the cultural common uh, uh, views on things. They have to test everything against what they find in Scripture. Well, this fall, that's what we're going to do. We're going to go through Ephesians 4 and Ephesians 5, and in fact, not even all of Ephesians 5, but a very comprehensive, short passage that Paul wrote many, many centuries ago that gives us a comprehensive Christian ethic. It's a little bit like a... a, It's quite remarkable. We're not going to do it right now, obviously, but if you read through chapter 4 and and the first part of chapter 5, what you see is that Paul covers all kinds of stuff. He covers philosophy and worldviews. He deals with personal ethics. He deals with economics. He deals with communication. He deals with psychology. He deals with so many, many different things. It's it's like a whole series of mountain ranges, you could say. Uh, And we're going to try to traverse these mountain ranges together over the next few months. That's the introduction for today. So today, we're going to hit our first mountain range right here in the first verses of chapter 4. And what we're going to learn is that in answer to the question, how shall we then live, Paul says, one, the first thing Paul says is, you must learn to live in a community united by the Trinity. That's the thesis for this morning. If you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, want to know how to live, the only way you're going to do it is in a community united by the Trinity. Now, that may not sound so profound to you, but as a preacher, uh, of course, I have to expand on this. So we're going to do that over the next few minutes. We're going to look at what it means to be in community, in a, uh, what it means to be in a united community, and then a, a community united by the Trinity, you can see on the back of your bulletin a little outline. So, first of all, how should we live? Paul says we should live in community. So, beginning of verse 1, he says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. So, Paul says, if you want to live as a follower of Jesus Christ, you need to live a life worthy of a calling. So he's referring to this calling thing that we have received. Where do you learn what that calling is? You go to the first chapters of Ephesians. In Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, Paul lays out Ephesian church. And he says things like, or he explains things like how Christians, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, that means that you, uh, God set his love on you before the foundation of the world. So before Uh, you were born before your parents were born, before the world itself was born, before the entire universe was born. God and, and the stars had been born. God loved you and he had chosen you and he had set his affection on you and he had desired to be in a a meaningful uh, relationship with you. That's one of the truths, one of the, the doctrines that Paul describes in the first chapter of Ephesians. And then he goes on and he explains how Jesus Christ is God's son who came into the world to live the life that you should have lived, to die the death that you should have died. He died that death, he rose from the dead, and then he ascended to the Father and is now reigning and ruling all, the, all things over the universe for you. 
And then he goes on again, uh, even further. And he says, look, uh, you are a part of this community as much as anybody else is a part of this community through the grace of God given you in Jesus Christ. Remember, he's speaking to a, a, an age where there was a tremendous amount of racism and separation between different peoples of, of different races and different cultures. And he says, you are all united together in the person of Jesus Christ. And then he says, you, and then he goes on to explain how you and I can experience this incredible love in relationship with God. So he has all these different, very, very massively important, weighty, so to speak, uh, doctrines. And then he says, live a life worthy of that calling. Now it's interesting, that word worthy, is, it, it actually comes from the, word, from the word for weight. Okay? The Greek word weight. And the picture that you have here is a picture of scales. You know when you have um, a set of scales where, where uh, you put weights on either side of the scale to, to see what something weighs, right? So you put a, you know what I'm saying. What Paul is saying is, is that the calling is so weighty that we are now called to live a life that balances the weight of that calling. That's what he's saying. In other words, our lives are supposed to reflect the doctrine that he explains in the first three chapters. But what's so shocking about this is, okay, listen up. Here's Paul, the Apostle Paul. He's old. He's in prison. He's in chains. He knows that his life is probably going to come to an end pretty soon. He's, he's pretty sure that he's not going to get out of prison, that he's going to be stuck there until his death. When he writes to the Ephesians, and he says all these grand doctrines, and he says, now, here's how you need to live in, in balance with these incredible truths that are, that are true about you. He does not say you need to stop your sexually immoral behavior. You need to stop being idolaters. You need to read your Bible more. You need to be honest. These things are all true. Absolutely, they're true. But rather, the first thing he says is, you need to be in community. That's the first thing he says. Look at verses 4 and 5. Or, sorry, verses 3, 4, and 5. He says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. He's making an assumption about the fact that the Ephesians are in a communal relationship with other Christians. That's why they need to keep this unity that already exists. He goes on to say, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. Now, we'll get to that. Uh, we'll, get, we'll, get, we'll get to that. We'll get deeper into that in a few minutes. But for now, understand this. If you are a Christian you must necessarily be part of a profoundly intimate community that Paul, in verse 4, calls the body. It's very interesting. We could, we could spend the whole sermon just unpacking the implications of Paul calling the church community a body. But what he means by it is this. It's an interdependent whole. We're part of an interdependent whole where each part 
needs the other part for survival. So you look at a body, if you take a finger, you cut a finger off from the rest of the body, it's still a finger, but it's not vital, it's not living. It will eventually, it dies immediately, it's funny, eh? You don't think of your finger as alive because you think of it as part of your whole, like you are alive. It's not my finger is alive and my toe is alive and my earlobe is alive. They all are, but you don't think about them that way. So when a finger gets cut off from you, it's not that it, it dies the way because the rest of you is still alive, right? But the finger is dead. It will rot. The flesh will eventually rot. And it's useless. It can't do what it was made to do because it's meant to be part of an integrated whole, and that's the body. Now, we could apply this universally, and we could say, look, every follower of Jesus Christ, we are part of the universal church. We are part of um, the whole Christian church of, of, of the world. Everybody who confesses Jesus as Lord. So if you go to Nigeria, or you go to Latin America, or you go to Asia, or you go to Russia, and you meet another follower of Jesus Christ, you are united to that person in faith. And that is true, but... Paul is actually applying this, this body issue locally. And so I want to apply it locally here as well. As well. Those of you who have made Grace Valley Church your church, you need to understand what Paul is saying is, is that the primary place where you are to live a calling worth or live a life worthy of the calling that you have received is in this community. You are called here. Now what that means is that you cannot be satisfied simply with coming to a gathering on Sunday morning and saying, well, because I go to a service where I sing worship songs and I hear sermons being preached, that I am actually part of this community. And then go home and then live from Monday through Saturday kind of an individualistic Christian life. Extremely individualistic person. I've been learning a lot about Enneagrams because Megan is an Enneagram fanatic. Okay, I won't tell you what number I am, but I hate being told what to do. So if you know Enneagrams, you know what I am. So when I hear, if I were you, and a preacher was preaching, and I heard me saying what I'm saying to you right now, I would not like what I'm being told, because I would feel like I am being pressured. I don't like to be pressured and told what to do. I would feel like I'm being pressured and told that I have to do something more than what I want to do. And I don't know any way to get around this other than to say that is exactly what I'm doing to you. Except that it ain't me. It ain't me. See, This goes counter not only to our nature, okay, especially people like me, my nature, very individualistic, some of you are like that too, less, some of you are less kind of like that, and that's okay. But it certainly goes against our culture. We, what, what do we love in our culture? Our heroes are the individual. Our heroes are the self-made men and women who have built themselves up by their own bootstraps, 
who have not leaned on and depended on other people, who are not needy and whiny and have to be around other people all the time because they can't get through life on their own. The people that we celebrate are the people who achieve all on their own. And we encourage people to be all on our own. I do it too. I am horrible with, like, not horrible. I, I shouldn't be too hard on myself. But, you know, with your kids, you're like, you can do it yourself. You can do it yourself. You're always telling your kids, you can do it yourself. Can you help me tie my shoelace? Come on, you can do it yourself. We're always pushing that kind of independence. And Paul is coming along and saying, you have got it wrong. Now, listen, there are horrible forms of interdependence and community. Like, you can be part of a cult, right? And that's not good. But don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Don't say, because there are abuses to community, therefore I am going to avoid community. You shouldn't do that. You don't go to a doctor and say, this doctor stinks, and this doctor has abused their work as a medical doctor, therefore I throw off all medicine. Of course not. You say, this doctor's terrible, I'll go find a better doctor. You don't say no to antibiotics simply because you were prescribed the wrong medication, right? And so Paul is pushing against our individualistic tendencies and longings and rooted desires, and he says, look, you cannot survive as a follower of Jesus Christ if you are not part of an actual worshiping community. Now, how can that be? Really? You can't survive as a follower of Jesus Christ? You really can't unless you are part of a local community? That, come on, that's pretty extreme. Well, yeah, but... Look at, let's go to point three. It's not just a community. It's not just any community. We're part, you have to be part of a united community. How do you live a life worthy of the calling that you have received? You live it as part of a united community. Look at verse two again. Be completely, this is amazing. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Every one of those things Paul says you need to be is the opposite, okay, of our natural tendency. It's the opposite. He says, be completely humble. It's the opposite of pride. What does pride engender? What does pride encourage? Pride says, worry about yourself, essentially. Humility says, not think less of yourself, it's think about yourself less. You remember that definition of humility from C.S. Lewis? It's very poignant, very brilliant, and very biblical. Humility is not saying, I stink, I'm no good. Humility is saying, I'm not concerned so much with self. I'm not self-absorbed, which is essentially what pride is. He says, be patient. What is impatience? Impatience is things are not getting done my way, on my timeline, in my manner, and I'm frustrated. He says, be gentle. What is the opposite of gentleness? It's harsh, harshness. It's, it's saying my agenda matters over yours. And then he says, bear one another, bear with one another in love. Carry each other. I, I have heard, I have heard it, not so much from people in the church, but I've heard people say, look, I got enough of my own problems. 
how in the world am I supposed to be able to have time for yours too? Now, where else but in the church, really, or in your family, where else but in the church are you going to be forced to cultivate these kind of characteristics? Humility, patience, gentleness, forbearance. At work, maybe, but, you know, in a lot of workplaces, it's all about self-promotion, right? At school, well, you've got this power relationship with your teacher, right? So are you actually really being humble and gentle, or are you just keeping your nose clean so that your marks don't drop or you don't end up in detention? With your friends, if they're really strong friendships, absolutely yes. But a lot of relationships are based upon you make me feel good and I think make you feel good. And as soon as we're not making each other feel good, we don't call each other anymore or text or Twitter or whatever it is you do now. See, in the church, you're put in relationship with people that, frankly, in any other context, maybe you wouldn't choose to be in relationship with just like a family, right? Just like a family. You don't, you know, how many people have grown up and said, man, I tell you, I would not have picked so-and-so as a brother or sister, but I'm stuck with them. I wouldn't want to hang out with them, but, I, but I'm stuck with them, you see? And look, honestly, nobody really grows because they're not part of a church. It's, it's very popular to be in kind of a, Jesus and me era where we I worship on my own, etc. But I know it myself. When I do my own devotions quietly in my living room without my family around, uh, I'm not being challenged. I'm being challenged to really question my interpretation or question whether or not I'm I'm living out my faith. I'm just my my own interpretive grid. When you're united in a community, what happens is is that the parts of the body become preoccupied with serving the whole. So the mission of the whole becomes the concern of every part. You don't see hands and feet in a body saying, I gotta get mine. How come I'm not getting enough time? Or, you know what I'm saying? I'm not doing this very well. Uh, okay, here's a, here's a good illustration very quickly. Good, good example, very recent for sports fans. Okay, Antonio Brown didn't want to play for the Raiders, asked to be uh, let go out of his contract, and now he's going to the Patriots. Now, Bill Belichick, the, the coach of the Patriots, is all about team, 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 team. Antonio Brown has always been about Antonio, 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 so that when he played for, who was he played for before, Luke? Pittsburgh Penguins, or not Penguins, <laughs> Pittsburgh Steelers, sorry. Luke knows everything about sports, okay? Uh, when he played for Pittsburgh, one of the reasons he left was because he wasn't getting enough catches. He wasn't being played to enough. And so now he's going to have to go to Pittsburgh, or, uh, the Patriots, New England, where he has to let his ego be uh, uh, um, uh, subsumed under the great ego of Tom Brady and Bill Belichick and the New England Patriots. Because the goal of the whole is greater than the goal of the individual. 
Frankly, Antonio, we don't care if you want to be in the Hall of Fame and you want to have the most catches every year. We care about winning Super Bowls as a team. Do you see what I'm saying? And that's why Paul gives this list. Be humble, be patient, be gentle, bear with one another in love. You know, uh, Rebecca, let me give you a very specific way of applying this right here, right now, in this church, this Sunday. A woman by the name of Rebecca McLaughlin uh, wrote a fantastic little article uh, called Make Sunday Morning Uncomfortable. And in this article, which you will find out about because we're going to distribute it to engagement leaders, we're going to put it on the Facebook page and, and make sure that everybody has a chance to read this, she said there must never be any lonely people on a Sunday morning in church. Must never be any lonely people on a Sunday morning in church. And you see, the primary New Testament family is not actually the biological family, the, the nuclear family, whatever you want to call it. It is the family of God. And so when you come into a worship service, you should be scanning around saying, are there people sitting alone and are they okay with sitting alone? Have they been offered uh, a, a community to sit with? Now, those of us who have families, we should be the first ones doing this, but you single people who are extroverted, you are not off the hook. You should be going around and sitting with different people all the time. For, for probably, I don't know, Jessica, was it at least five, seven years of our lives when we were going to our old church, Jessica had to sit with four rowdy sub-teenage you know, sub kids uh, and, you know, by herself, because I was up front doing the whole minister thing. And, and so our kids spent maybe in our church who they sat with so that my wife had help keeping control of all the bodies that were squirming around and around. We should be looking around for ways that people who are new to this place, have never been here before, or who are new and only been here a few times, who they never feel, if they ever leave this place uh, upset with Grace Valley Church, it's because not that they were ignored, but because they were just sort of overloved and they got sick of it. That's what should happen. I don't want to go to that church. They're too friendly. They're too hospitable. They're too kind. They're too welcoming. They're too warm. That's what Rebecca McLaughlin uh, argues in this article. And after church, people should never be standing alone. I know you come here to see your friends. I come here to see my friends too. But if you're sitting there talking to your friends and you look over and you see someone's got a coffee and they're just sort of standing all by themselves, you might have to say to your friend, I'll call you later or I'll text you later or whatever. I, I know I got to be over there and I got to bless that person. Now, this, 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 is, this is not how we naturally operate. It isn't. When, when Grace Valley was like 60 people when it started, it operated like that because it was impossible not to. Like, how do you, how do you ignore somebody when there's hardly anybody in the room? <laughs> I hate that's a bad way of putting it. But, um, but the bigger you get, the easier it is to stop doing that because you've got your peeps and you start forgetting the mission and the vision. And the devil will try to blow against the commitment to the mission of the whole. He will try hard to undermine it. Maybe he's trying right now. Maybe he's, he's whispering in your ear saying, ah, oh, that guy, he's a little overbearing. He's giving that pitch again. This is of huge importance, though, guys. Listen, Paul is jailed. He's in jail. He's about to die, and he says, I urge you to live this life. 
I urge you, parakaleo, the Greek word means beg. It can mean admonish. It can mean plead with. It can mean, what else can it mean? Entreat, implore. Listen, you know redwood trees? Redwood trees are remarkable trees in California. They can grow to be over 300 feet tall. That's longer than a soccer field, right? It's unbelievable. Some of them can be up to 2,000 years old or older. Can you imagine that? There were trees around when Jesus was walking the earth. They can weigh up to 1.6 million pounds. Million pounds. You would think that trees that big, that they would have roots that go way, 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 way down. Kind of like when you, when you see skyscrapers being built along the, the Queenie in Toronto, and you see that they're building the foundation of the skyscraper, and it goes almost as far down into the ground, it seems, as it does go up. But that's actually not the case with redwoods. Redwood tree uh, roots do not actually go all that deep into the ground. You know what they do? They go out. And they, they intertwine themselves in a very intricate pattern with the roots of other redwood trees so that whenever a storm comes and it's blowing on a redwood tree, it's never just blowing on a redwood tree, it's blowing on the whole forest. And Paul is saying that these traits, humility, patience, gentleness, forbearance, these things knit us together, you see, so that Jesus can say, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So that when the storm buffets you, it doesn't just buffet you, it buffets all of us. Okay, last point. Community united. Community united by the Trinity. Look at verses 4 through 6. Uh, we've looked at them already. But there's a lot of these one, 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 one. Thankfully, the unity of this church and of any church does not ultimately depend on us and our behaviors. Thank God for that. Because we're not all that humble, we're not all that gentle, we're not all that patient with one another very, very often. But our unity, it actually comes from this taproot that, that is the nature of God himself. You notice that in verse 3, it says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Keep it. Paul does not say create it. He doesn't say build it. He doesn't say uh, develop it. He says keep it. Because this unity is a gift from God because it's rooted in the very character of God. You see that there is one Father, there is one Son, there is one Spirit, and they live in, in an adoration for one another and with one another. And in, the, in his high priestly prayer, before Jesus went to his death, in John 17, Jesus actually said, he prayed that, 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 that we would be caught up into an experience of that love and that adoration and that deep intimacy. And Paul even does it here in, in chapter 3. He closes chapter 3 of Ephesians with this. Listen to this. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he, that is God, may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, listen, you're, being, you're rooted and you're established in love. You have it already. This unity is something we have already. And then he says, 
may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and how long and how high deep is the love of Christ and to know that love that surpasses knowledge. You see, the longing is is that you and I would experience that love, not just know it up here in our heads upstairs, but that it would be a part of us in the here and the now. Because we're born of one spirit, you see. We have the same DNA. We're part of the divine nature. We have one faith. We all believe in the one Jesus Christ, our Lord, right? That he died, that he rose, that he reigns. We all have one hope. We all believe we're, we're going in the same direction. We're heading to an eternity with him. We have one Lord. Think about how incredible that is. We have one Lord. What are you living for? Where do you get your marching orders from? Bob Dylan said, everybody's got to serve somebody. And when you walk into this place and you look across the aisle at other people who are in this place with you, you can know that you are serving the same Lord. You have the same God. of our unity. And so Paul says, make every effort to keep that unity. Make every effort to keep that unity. You know, here's a family. Here's Tom and Mary. No, Bob and Mary are married to each other. Uh, but they don't like each other much, so they live in separate houses across from town from one another. And they have three kids, Tom, Dick, and Harry, and they all live in different parts of the country, and they never get together because they don't like to spend time with each other either. And they never get together at Christmas, they never get together at New Year's, they never get together at Thanksgiving, they never spend any time together because they just don't get along and they don't really like each other. That's a family, but that's a dysfunctional family. We would all agree They're not making every effort to maintain that unity. Okay, last verse. What a beautiful verse. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We are God's children together. Um... Those of you who have adult children can probably speak to this very well. When your kids are young, they fight and they squabble, and sometimes like they're really at each other and they say, say stuff like, I hate you, and maybe even in their teen years, you know, they don't want to spend any time with each other, and you're always thinking to yourself, oh man, they treat each other like garbage. Why do they do that? Please tell me somebody here has seen that. Um, but then... As they get older, something really interesting happens in healthy families. Your kids become friends. And there is nothing more delightful to a parent than to sit around a campfire or sit in a living room as a parent or a grandparent and watch your adult children be friends and interact with each other and share life together and and bear burdens together and encourage each other and help each other out and and just enjoy being with one another. Well, you're my brothers and sisters. I'm your brother and sister. How much more is that true for our Heavenly Father? So, we can start this today, guys. Walk across the room after the service and say hello to another person. And who cares? 
if they've been coming here for six months or a year or whatever and you've never talked to them and you feel like a turkey they're finally introducing yourself after all this time who cares who cares really just say I'm a turkey that's not my name but that's what I am hi how else can you do this you can serve serving uh, on Sundays is a great place and time to meet people you share in the mission of the whole here and uh, you get to know people. You can come to men's or women's prayer. That's not everybody can do that. But you could, where you get to bear each other's burdens because you share the burdens of the church and the burdens of one another with each other, and we pray together, and we lift each other up. Join an engaged group. Become part of an engaged group. Commit yourself to an engaged group. Fight every individualistic urge you have that says, oh, if I commit to this, then I'll have to go. Yeah, you will. But listen, okay, one more thing that I learned this week. I've been thinking about this a lot this week. And then I read an amazing article. Not about this. It was about actually something totally different. I think it was about time management. But anyhow, I was wasting time reading it. And, uh, but the guy in the article, he said something so insightful. He said, we default to do the easy over the enjoyable. It's way easier to go on your phone and scroll than it is to go into the living room and sit down and look, at, look a family member in the eye and start a conversation. It's way easier to go for a walk outside your front door on a Sunday afternoon than to get in the car and drive to somebody's house and sit there and talk about the sermon and get to know them and all that kind of stuff. But, but how many times, some, many of us can attest to the fact that there are so many times where you didn't want to go but by the end, you were glad you went. Our natural tendency is to do what is easy over what is enjoyable. Um, you need the engaged group because you can't be intimately related to everybody in the church this size. It's impossible. Like the fingers know each other better and know their palm better then they know the kneecap or the pancreas. That makes sense. So you need to be, your part of the body needs to be connected to other parts of the body. Okay. I don't have a really great dramatic closing um, like I usually like to do for sermons. So I'll just say, Amen! Let's pray. Father, thank you for this portion of scripture that is so rich and so challenging. May we listen, may we receive, may we act, may we trust that you, you know what you're doing when you call us to things. And when you do, we will be blessed through them. Uh, thank you, Father, for one another. Help us, Father, uh, bear with one another show humility towards one another, be gentle with one another, and patient with one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.